Welcome to Pathfinder Academy. Class is now in session. Here are your professors, Caleb and Christian. Good morning, class. You may be seated. Today, we'll be reviewing the Advanced Player's Guide. This is part of our book review series where we review every core book in the Pathfinder role-playing game. 335 pages makes up this pretty meaty book. I like my books meaty. Chapter 1, Races. 18 pages. Each race gets two pages. These aren't new races. These are all the old races. And what are we getting new about them? We're getting a little bit of lore regarding each race's disposition towards and reasoning for becoming each class. And that includes all the classes that are available up to this point, the core classes and the classes introduced in this book. I think that stuff can be interesting. However, as a creative person myself, whenever I come up with characters, I don't think I've ever consulted the race guide or this book to see, hmm, what is my race? Why would he be a rogue? I just sort of come up with that on my own, but I guess if you, that isn't where you get creativity, there's a chance there for you to uh, spawn some reasoning for that. We also get alternate racial traits and favored class options. You've heard us talk a lot about those in the race episode. I was surprised to find that these are not core. I find alternate racial traits and favored class options so like integral to the way that I build characters that I just assumed it was core. So this is the first time we're seeing this. To give you a little little taste of my conclusion, we'll be finding that throughout this book, at least in my case. I kept going, wait, this wasn't, our, I play with this by default. How is this not already built into the crust? <laughs> See, I, I am in the same boat that I don't find the whole bit about each race and their lore and why there's certain classes very useful or it's a little interesting, but it's not very useful. But if you're a newer player or someone who doesn't like making in-depth backstories or finding reasons why your character's in the game, it could be a useful tool for you. It's always a fun thing to have your eyes open to the world of others. I was listening to a Pathfinder podcast and the guy's talking about how he makes his characters. And I was just like, I don't even know if I could play with you, let alone <laughs> understand how to be you. <laughs> I, I try not to say... This is dumb. No one's going to use it. There probably is people out there going to use it. it. Just isn't my cup of tea. Doesn't mean it's bad that it's in there. And it's only eighteen pages. Yeah, very small subset of this book. One hundred and twenty-four pages in chapter two. We got six new classes introduced in this book, and these are called base classes. The alchemist gets six pages. Cavalier gets five and a half. Inquisitor gets four and a half. The oracle gets eleven. Not super surprising, given that they're a caster. Summoner gets nine and a half, and the witch gets seven. We also get archetypes. This is the first introduction of archetypes. Oh yes, <laughs> yes. I would buy the book just for this. Finally, how did you play without archetypes? That's why I play the game. Another thing that we're talking about. Oh, this was introduced in this. I thought this was always around. Uh, the archetypes, I believe, are only for the core classes. Clerics also get some subdomains, which is also newly introduced in this book. Instead of archetypes, they've, I've heard Pazza talk a lot about how archetypes are hard to do for clerics. Apparently it has something to do with like how few actual class options they get. I, I don't understand it completely, but it is true. It's because all they have is channel energy. That's like their ac only actual class feature and domains. So that's why every cleric archetype replaces channel energy. It's the only thing they have to replace. Hmm. Well, sorcerers get bloodlines instead, and wizards get arcane schools instead. We also get the first alternate class. They don't quite call it that, but we get the anti-paladin. We get new barbarian rage powers and rogue talents as well. Which I find interesting, the barbarian rage powers and the rogue talents, because even in the advanced player's guide, they were trying to give those two classes more love, because I guess they felt like they didn't get enough in the core book, and both of them ended up getting an unchained version. That's true. Hmm, good point. I guess they thought they could fix it with just more content, that m better options. 
And that didn't end up being the perfect solution. The classes are great. I love the base classes. All of them are good, fun to play, incredibly flavorful. I think these are some of the best design classes in the game. Really, Christian, you think the Summoner is one of the best design classes I'm in the game, I'm sticking huh? my foot in my mouth. One second. I haven't stretched in a while. Here it goes. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. You can't hear the chomp, but yeah, no, Summoner was uh, Summoner was something. It was definitely something. We got we can get in a whole discussion about Summoner. Uh, this was the introduction of the most overpowered class in Pathfinder ever. Well, to be fair, I don't think the archetype that is widely considered what took so much advantage of the summoner is in this book. True. The Master Summoner and the Synthesis Summoner. Uh, but I agree with you. Like, these classes are cool. I recently learned a lot about the Oracle, which sort of is like the sorcerer for divine spells with, uh, and still added some new and interesting things. I don't know why, but I know a ton of people love the witch. Whenever I try to build a witch... I sorry don't see a ton of combat implementation. It's all stuff like you curse them for weird dreams. That doesn't help me when I'm fighting, you know, three Rougarous or whatever. But okay. Look at him. He's running. Look, he's streaming. He's running. <laughs> Chapter three feats is 26 pages. Christian, tell us about these feats. In total, there are 166 feats. And wow. that's a lot. They introduce a lot of different types of feats. They introduce a lot of good feats, useful feats. I think overall, this is a really good list. We had some extra feats in the core book. You had like extra lay on hands, extra keys. They continued that trend here. You got extra hexes, extra bombs, extra discoveries, extra rage powers, extra revelation, extra rogue talents. So again, a little love to the barbarian and the rogue here. They didn't have those options in core, which kind of blows my mind. They were, I, well, I guess it doesn't blow my mind. It's not like you would want an extra rogue talent. That's stupid. <laughs> Christian. <laughs> uh, but the other ones are like the crux of how I build those classes. If I'm building an alchemist, I am taking extra discoveries. If I build an oracle, you better believe I'm taking extra revelations. I don't think they're complete classes without it. There's an incredibly important feat here for anyone that uses two-handed weapons called Furious Focus. When you use power attack with a two-handed weapon, a.k.a. every fighter ever, it, you ignore the penalty on your first attack each round. So effectively, level one, you're getting a plus one to your attack rolls. You know, level five, level six, you're getting a plus two, a plus three to your attack rolls effectively. It's insanely strong. Did a two-handed build. This was a crucial part of it. Allowed me to get my person that was doing over 100 damage. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. I couldn't do anything else, but I could sunder. <laughs> Speaking of sundering, there were some combat maneuvers introduced in this book. Not sunder, but we'll see later they introduce things like steal, reposition, dirty trick, and drag. And with the introduction of those combat maneuvers, they also added improved and greater versions of those combat maneuvers. So you have improved steal, reposition, dirty trick, drag, which are the simple... You don't invoke an attack of opportunity, you get a plus two to it, and then greater versions of Dirty Trick, Drag, and Steal. The hero point system was introduced in this book, and with that comes some feats, or at least one feat, that uses hero points, and it's called Hero's Fortune, which just gives you an additional hero point when you take it. And the maximum number of hero points you can have goes up from three to five. We get Deep Sight, allowing you to increase your dark vision, which is nice. Lingering Performance for the Bard a pretty staple feat for most bard builds, and especially some archetypes, when a bard stops their bardic performance, the benefits of the performance last for two additional rounds. So effectively, you are tripling the number of rounds per day you can perform if you are starting and stopping in combat, and certain archetypes like the archaeologists make incredible use of this. We get Eclectic, which allows you to get a second favorite class. I didn't really realize until this point, really only half-elf 
Was that even possible? Still, I think it's way better as a class feature than it is as a feat when it comes power level wise. It's hard to waste a feat on that, but still, you got that option now. The step up feat chain was introduced here, which is when someone takes a five foot step away from you, you follow them. And there's also the follow up feat, step up and strike, which is if someone takes a five foot step away from you, you follow them and then you smack them in the face. (laughs) In a game that is literally everyone taking a five foot step every round, I think this is a criminally underplayed Feet chain, I think it's stupid strong. It completely guts spellcasters. It guts archers if you get up in their face. No one can five foot step away from the melee character anymore. I think it's really interesting because you almost five foot step as much as you move. There's a lot of options there for like you increase your move speed and stuff. And there's rarely you find stuff like this. Yeah, well, it's in wreck with the five foot step. Hmm. So if you are a fighter or you are any class that gets bonus feats and you are in melee, I highly suggest this feat chain. It will actually change the way that you play the game and the way that enemies can actually play around you. Parry spell sounds like something super cool that you want to do. It requires 15 ranks in spellcraft and the improved counter spell feat. If you successfully counter a spell, you send it back to the caster as if using spell turning. It sounds amazing, but in reality, I am willing to bet this has never happened once. (laughs) If any of you are claiming that you have successfully used parry spell, you're lying. You are in a fugue state. I don't believe you. Uh, I literally have spell turning spell on a character I've used, and I have not been able to cast it once because guess what most casters have? A high will save. Guess how you break spell turning? A will save. Mm. Uh, (laughs) It's a really cool effect. It's also extremely complicated. I guess you'd have to target sorcerers with it because they tend to have charisma not wisdom but yeah they all have high will saves for the most part it's a it's a spell anyway why why would i pick a feat that's a spell i can cast a spell well i mean only wizard and summoner have it on their spell list christian wow fine so instead at level 15 don't pick parry spell pick the (laughs) best spell casting feat spell perfection it requires 15 ranks in spellcraft and three meta magic feats you pick any of your spells you know Whenever you cast that spell, you add a meta magic that you know to it for free. But you can't bring the spells level over level 9. It also has the benefit that if you have any feat that increases the numerals of your spells, such as spell focus, you double them. So instead of adding a plus 1 to the DC, your spell focus now adds plus 2. Oh wow, Romans must love them, given that you said numerals (laughs) and not numeric bonuses. I can't wait to add my IV to all my spells. What are you talking about? (laughs) <laughs> really got you. Your own stupidity really made you laugh there, Christian. I'm casting Fireball II. <laughs> <laughs> it requires X amount of guano. I don't know what X is. Wow. I'll just throw is, that. Is that a variable or? <laughs> Do I have to solve for X now? Oh no. It's a good thing there's no Roman numeral N. So th- this feat is absolutely bonkers. It's a crux of basically every spellcaster ever. Pick it at level 15. Definitely awesome. We get some love in the feats for sword and board builds that make them a little bit more desirable. You're still probably going to play a two-handed fighter anyway, but that's okay. You get missile shield, which is kind of like deflect arrows, but as long as you're holding a shield. And there is shield specialization, which is you add the bonus of your shield to your combat maneuver defense, which now means that as someone with a shield, you actually have better, much better defensive options than someone with a two-handed sword. Your CMD is going to be crazy high. Knock arrows, bullets, whatever, once around, out of the air. Doesn't affect you all, doesn't target your AC, just, it just happens. It just yes, works. Yes, my reflex is four, but yes, I can also deflect bullets. <laughs> it's not in this book, but there's also a feat somewhere where you add your shield's bonus 
to your reflex saves against AoE spells, or AoE effects. In the words of Todd Hauer, it just works. With the addition of Cavalier and Inquisitor, these are both classes that care about teamwork feats. We don't get a lot of super useful teamwork feats in here, honestly, but we get one of the best ones, which is Outflank. As long as you and someone else with this teamwork feat are flanking somebody, you increase the bonus from flanking to a plus four. So effectively giving you a plus two to hit. Really good. Crazy good for Inquisitor because the Inquisitor does not require his teammates to have it. He basically always flanks with a plus four with a plus four bonus. I like teamwork feats that have a good value like this, but also ones that change the way that you play the game. If the Cavalier activates his tactician ability, gives everyone outflank, well now your whole team's going to be focused on changing their game plan and getting that flanking bonus, maybe taking a little bit more risk to get into that flanking position. We get racial heritage, which has been the subject of many shenanigans. If you're a human, you pick one non-human race, and that's like your ancestry, somewhere in your bloodline, and you count as that race. You can pick archetypes, you can use items, you can use spells from that race. So you could do something like be a feral Nasher human. What's a feral Nasher? That is a barbarian archetype for goblins that is made for them to bite things and grab them with their mouth. Christian, I want to be a vampire, but I do not want to be a vampire. What do I do? Well, if you take racial heritage Dampier... Or honestly, feral Nasher would still kind of work for this. I can make a zombie build. I can make a zombie build! I can pull off a piece of beef jerky off your neck like in Resident Evil 2. Why does it look like beef jerky? <laughs> Anyone who's playing the remake, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, have you ever seen your neck arteries? Like, maybe that's what it looks no. like. No. Last one I'm going to point out is Steel Soul. Dwarf has that racial trait that says you get a plus two on your saving throws against spells and spell-like abilities. This increases it to a plus four. Insanely powerful. The dwarf saving throws are dummy thick. It, this is such a stupidly strong feat. Did you just say dummy thick without sort of a lot of joking or funny voice? You just kind of you, you just kind of snuck it in there as if people say that normally. Colonel. Uh, no, <laughs> stop it. But I'm dummy thick. 14 pages in chapter four equipment. We don't get a ton of new weapons and armor, but we do get some. There's a couple of looked over items that... Like the theme is here so far, how is this not in the core? Like a tent and blanket. The weapon cord makes its introduction here, which was famously broken and then nerfed via errata. We get a few new alchemical items like Universal Solvent and Acclimus Kindness, which I see used a lot. I forgot to mention, when we were going through the feats, those were not all the feats. Those were just some that we were bringing up just as illustration, just as I'm doing now. Uh, we get loaded dice and marked cards, which I've used in the past, but really not a lot. It's only 14 pages. To highlight some of the weapons that were introduced that are important, uh, we can thank the Advanced Player's Guide for the monstrosity that is the Falcata. If you want an extended times three crit range, you know where to look for it. Let us now move on to talk about spells, which is chapter five here. 70 pages of spells, 267 spells, Christian. Yikes. That is a lot of spells. It's a... Heck of a lot of spells. That's too many spells, honestly. I will say that, like in the core rulebook, and like they pretty much illustrate through the rest of all their books, they display the spells really well with first a list by each class and each spell level, and then giving the details of all the spells. It's really well organized. So we're just going to pick some of the spells that we think are interesting. Uh, right off the bat, first one I picked, alphabetical order, Ant Hall. I'm already having problems with it. So, Ant Hall. Oh, no. Here we go. You and carrying stuff. We had this with, what, what was it? It doesn't make there any sense. It doesn't make any sense. So, All right, go on, go so, on. No, explain it. Ant Hall says your carrying capacity triples. So, that's cool. If I have 18 strength, 
you know, normally I can carry a heavy load of 300 pounds, triples to 900 pounds. That's crazy. But it specifies it doesn't increase your strength. Okay, I can carry 900 pounds, but I can't lift 900 pounds? How do I get to the point where I'm carrying it then? You can cast it communally and then have you and all your friends now able to carry 900 pounds of stuff and just carry stuff away. It's kind of crazy, actually, how much you can carry with this spell. When you, your DM asks the question of, how are you carrying the gold statue out of this dungeon? You say, well, I have a scroll of Ant Hall. It's a level one spell. It's like 50 gold. I'm taking it with me. I don't know how I'm picking it up, but I can carry it, but I can't pick it up. I don't understand the distinction there. Says the man when I brought up the same exact concept of how you're picking it up, argued that you could pick up an entire village. You could. <laughs> The waffling is strong with this one. What's a waffling? What's a waffling? <laughs> it's what they say when I enter a dance. <laughs> the waffling has begun. <laughs> <laughs> we get acid pit, level four spell. Yes, more pit spells. I've used them to great effect in the past. I had a caster which I failed almost all of my rolls, except for acid pit, because it requires them to roll. <laughs> also, they just fall. Pits work all the time, so we get acid pit. This starts the nice trend of making pit spells interesting by adding parts about it, like we also get hungry pit in this one. I think there was a couple pits, too. I think there was, like, bladed pit might be in here as well. The point is, the more pits, the better. Oh, yeah, the first, very first create pit is added here. Spiked pit, that's one thing. I'm not bladed, spiked. Very different. You, you know, bladed pit, I can handle. Spiked, mm, no, get me out of there. Blades just hurting you while you're in the pit. Spiked pit, I can't climb out of there without getting little pokes, all right? That's why they put barbed wire on stuff. We get arrow eruption, which is the kind of spell, and you see it, and you're like, wow, that sounds cool. Arrow eruption. You target it at a corpse that was slain by an arrow in the last round. You make a duplicate of that arrow, and it fires at everyone nearby. That's super cool. Your ranger shoots someone in the back of the head with an arrow, casts a spell, makes a copy of that arrow to attack everyone else. That's like the coolest visual. I want to cast this. But it's just like so needlessly restrictive, you'd rather cast any other spell instead. They have to be killed by specifically an arrow. Okay, well, I don't really get the... Is this League of Legends? I have to last hit them now? We care about who's last hitting? <laughs> So you have to last hit them with the arrow, get a little bit of golden experience. It only is a 30-foot range, so now you need to kill someone, and all their friends just have to be buddy-buddy standing around them 30 feet. You make a duplicate of the arrow, but guess what? Any special properties on the arrow are not copied. So if you cast True Strike, or if you enhanced it with something, nope, just an arrow shoots out. Okay, well, why don't I just, why don't I just shoot an arrow? Why don't I just shoot one instead of casting this stupid spell? I want it to be cool. I want it to be so cool, Caleb. It sounds cool. I'll, I'll have an NPC cast at some point, so my players should be like, oh, that's cool. And I'd be like, no, you're wrong. It's not cool. <laughs> <laughs> you just like to find opportunities where you can say to your players, no, you're wrong. I've tricked you. <laughs> yeah. We get a spell I didn't know exist, Bard's Escape. It's a level five Bard spell, so very high level spell. It's basically an AoE dimension door. You and up to X amount of allies, you can just teleport them and move their positions as per dimension door. It's pretty nutty. Uh, you basically get to completely reconfigure everyone's positioning in a fight. So if your fighter is in the back line and your wizard's being flanked, well, now you can just flip them around. Suddenly the fight is in your favor. Really crazy good spell. Beguiling Gift, a witch-type spell. It's a level one arcane spell. You offer an item to somebody, and if they fail their saving throw, they have to use the item. So if you offer them a potion, they have to drink it. If you give them a hat, they put on the hat. If you give them a sword, they wield the sword. It's a really niche spell, but it's really, really versatile, and I'm sure everyone, when they hear Beguiling Gift, is thinking of giving someone something different than I am. Maybe you give them a holy weapon, and they're an unholy person, and 
you know, it hurts them to hold that weapon. You, maybe you give them a filter of love and they fall in love with the first thing they see. Doesn't matter. Maybe you just give them a bunch of super glue and they stick their hands together. And it's just kind of a nice laugh everyone has. We get Blessing of Fervor. It's a level four divine spell. It does a bunch of stuff. You and all your allies pick from this list of things at the beginning of the round that say, oh, you get a plus two to attack rolls, or you could stand up from prone as a swift action, or what is this? You get an additional attack at your highest base attack bonus. This is haste for divine spellcasters and options for non-martial characters. Blessing of Fervor is one of the best spells. I absolutely love this spell. I love spells that let the people who have gotten them cast on it, or that's the worst way to say that, who have received the spell to pick how it affects them. There's a couple spells that do that, and I love them so much. And at some point through the course of a fight, you will probably find reason to use at least one of every one of the iterations of Blessing of Forever. Borrow Fortune is an oracle spell. It's a level three spell. It is an immediate action. You immediately reroll a d20 and take the better result of the two rolls. But... As cost to this, you have to, for the next two rounds, roll twice and take the worst result of all your d20 rolls. Hmm. Really interesting trade-off. It has a lot of this flavor of oracles get to kind of interact with fate in some way, and their curses and luck. I think it's a very, very strong spell, especially if it's like the end of a fight. You know the fight's not going on for two more rounds. If you cast this at the end of a fight to roll twice and take the better result of an attack roll, you know, you don't have to worry about those two rounds after because that's 12 seconds. Got the spell Castigate and Mass Castigate. It is a level two Inquisitor spell. If the target fails their saving throw, it forces the creature to beg for forgiveness. If they worship the same god as you, they take a minus two to their saving throw. I think this is a wonderfully flavorful Inquisitor spell. It's like quintessential Inquisitor. Big, scary Inquisitor guy shows up. The strong arm of the church. Mass castigate. Everyone's begging him for forgiveness. Even though they worship the same god as him, we're like, we're not worthy enough. Like, you are the big honcho of the church. We get the slightly morbid spell, Create Treasure Map. It's a level two spell that a lot of classes can cast. You take a big strip of skin off a dead creature, and it creates a map of all the valuables that that creature knew of in life. And this is the kind of spell that you can make like a whole campaign off of. You can kick off an entire campaign with the create treasure map on some important NPC and reveals a map of the cool stuff they knew. I agree. I love stuff like this that gives you opportunities to create a whole campaign. Also, GMs can hate that when the spell comes out of the blue you didn't know it existed. One of your players casts it on one (laughs) of your important dead NPCs, which you cannot argue. He didn't know anything. This was the major bad guy of the campaign. Oh no, what do I do now? (laughs) Oh look, the next room has a mace. (laughs) There is stipulations that like, it only creates a map of things that are true at the time of casting. So if the treasure moves, it the map doesn't update. And it only shows what the person to believe is true. So if the person, like, was fanatical and thought, like, oh, there's a big treasure vault down here, and they truly believe that, you would see that they thought there was treasure here. There might be nothing there. But they simply believed that there was something there. We get Dragon's Breath, a level 4 arcane spell. Kind of the iconic sorcerer wizard spell that allows you to do one of the various types of dragon breaths. Cool. In the Summoner's Court, we have Evolution Surge, Lesser Evolution Surge, and Greater Evolution Surge. A one, two, and three spells. That I've been using to dab on my GM the past couple sessions, my recent campaign where I'm playing a Summoner. Yeah, this Evolution Surge, Evolution Surge, I'm quick in metamagic Evolution Surge. My Edelon is now acting like a level 27 Edelon. Yeah, this is one of the crazier spells for Summoners. So you, you, you get a small pool of Evolution Points. And you immediately apply that an evolution of that cost to your Edelon. So 
The Elon evolution list is insanely powerful. It's got an option for literally everything. Oh, what's that? I got hit by an acid dragon? Acid immunity. Done. Exactly. You're the ultimate Swiss Army knife with the spell. You got instant enemy. If you're a ranger, you're taking instant enemy. That's not a question. That's a command. That is an order. You're taking this every time. It's a level three ranger spell. It's a swift action. It offers no saving throw and is not subject to spell resistance. You simply designate an enemy and you say, they're my favorite enemy now. I am going to apply my highest favorite enemy bonus to this creature. What? A swift action, you get a plus six to attack and damage rolls against this person. It's 100% busto. You, you take it every time. We get Knight's Calling. It's a level one paladin spell. And this is an attempt at like a tank spell. You, you cast this on an enemy. If they fail their saving throw, they have to approach you because you're calling them to a challenge. And if they end their turn adjacent to you, you get to make an attack of opportunity against them. So at least you still get an attack. There's been a lot of spells like this. That's like, oh, we forced the enemy to come toward you. Well, uh, I could have just walked over to him. Does that really get me any further? So you, you don't waste your turn. You still get to attack them. We get Phantasmal Revenge, a level seven arcane spell. You cast this on a corpse and a spectral image of the person who is dead appears and tries to kill whoever killed them. It seeks them out unerringly as long as they're on the same plane. The caster knows whether or not the phantasm was successful in killing the party or not. I think this is a really interesting spell for your NPCs to use as long as you know that's not going to like outright kill your players because it does a ton of damage. The, the ghost just shows up and does like 10 damage per caster level, which is insane. At level 7, that's like 140 damage because you're level 14, probably. Your, your players kill someone, they're just walking around. Oh no, it's the ghost of that guy, and he just nuked the bard. What just happened? For the bard, we get a series of spells called finales. Finales are spells that require you to end a bardic performance in order to cast them, which synergizes very well with lingering performance. The one I want to highlight is probably the best one. It's called Saving Finale. It's a level one spell. It's an immediate action. You end your bardic performance and allow an ally to re-roll a saving throw, which we always talk about. Rerolling is a very, very powerful mechanic. With the introduction of hero points in this book, there's some spells that interact with hero points. Sever Fate is a level three divine spell. Target fails or saving throw. They can't use hero points for 10 minutes a level, which if you have people who are relying highly on that system or using it could be interesting. It's a way to hurt your players without like killing their characters. Hurt the characters, don't hurt your players. You shouldn't do that. Shadow Projection is a level four arcane spell. You kind of possess your own shadow and you actually become your shadow and your body's just kind of sitting comatose wherever and you're able to just fly around and be a shadow. Wonderful scouting spell. Really cool, I think, NPC spell. It's a way that an enemy can interact with the party without the party just outright killing them. It's just his shadow every time. Last one I'm pointing out is Summon Edelon. It's a level two summoner spell. Remember how the summoner had like this entire drawback that in order to summon their Edelon, it took a 10 minute ritual? Forget about that. Never mind. Just cast Summon Edelon. One full round action. There it is. Pow. Woo. I like the restrictions it adds. It sort of then makes them have to live by the summon monster rules of when they disappear. They can be affected by certain other spells and things like that. It's a really cool trade-off. I myself, as a summoner, looked at this spell and didn't pick it because I thought to myself, you know what? If I lose my Eidolon, I have an ability to cast summon monster, you know, X as in the variable. <laughs> as, you know, a certain amount of times, I'll just summon one of those creatures instead. Chapter 6 prestige classes 22 pages 
We're getting eight new prestige classes. Christian, I don't care about prestige classes. Are these ones good enough to change my mind? <laughs> Whenever you ask the question, are these prestige classes good? You know the answer. The answer is no. <laughs> um, some of these are okay. We can do a quick speed run. All right, you got the Battle Herald. It's Bard slash Cavalier. Just if you, if you are a Bard and a Cavalier multi-class, take Battle Herald because you scale both at the same time. What an interesting combination to be. It's like a battlefield, like you're telling people on the battlefield with your charisma what to do sort of thing. It's interesting. While you're up there playing bagpipes. <laughs> you got the Holy Vindicator, which is a holy warrior that cuts themselves for strength. Their main mechanic is stigmata. They cut themselves and they bleed, and as they bleed, they get more strength. Mm, I'm glad we put mechanical options here for this wretched thing in religion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Horizon Walker. It's literally a prestige class that just gets a ton of favored terrains. That's it. That's all it does. Uh, Master Chemist is probably the most interesting here. It's for the alchemist. When you drink your mutagen, you actually get a alternate personality. It's almost like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde type scenario where oh, you actually, you pick a personality and alignment and you're, whenever you use your mutagen, you actually become effectively a different person, entirely new name, entirely new personality. I think that's an awesome thing for an NPC and it actually physically changes you so you can actually appear to be a different person. So you could have oh, cool. an NPC who is effectively two different people and the players have no idea. One of the only cool things about the new Mummy movie was the Jekyll Hyde. The one with Tom Cruise? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't watch it. I just... Yeah, I've only I've, uh, the farthest I've come to watching the new Mummy is seeing the memes where it's just the um. <laughs> <laughs> well, they had a Jekyll Hyde depiction. There was pretty cool, like Hyde. They did that great thing where everything Hyde said made sense, but you just don't want to go with him because he's the bad guy. No one ever listens. Like, eh, well, he was right though, wasn't he? <laughs> wasn't everything he said correct? Next, there is the Master Spy. It's kind of like Rogue in that it's bad. It's more focused on spy stuff, so you're really good at doing a mundane disguise, and I guess if you're playing a spy campaign, do it, or you could just be a spellcaster and do all that stuff anyway. There's Nature Warden, which is like a ranger or a druid, and just kind of has their mechanics, and I don't get it. It, it just it seems to be a ranger and a druid, and it just gets their abilities at different time frames. I probably have to read that one again. Rage Prophet's really cool. It's if you're a multi-classing Barbarian and Oracle, which is, I think, a really interesting combination. You get, like, a Spirit Guide, and when you Rage, your Spirit Guide gives you buffs. And lastly, there's Stalwart Defender. It's a defense-focused prestige class, a.k.a. it's bad. <laughs> well, I got a question for you. Mm -hmm. Do these at least show some improvement via iteration? Like, this is their second stab at prestige classes. Are they different or even better designed than the ones in the core rulebook? Mm, so I would say not really. A lot of them have pretty ludicrous prerequisites. Most of these you can't take till about level 7. And even the ones that are the multi-class focus ones, I probably still wouldn't take them. I'd probably just choose what levels I want to take my multi-class in because the way that they scale it, just doesn't really add up correctly. A lot of these ones with spellcasting, you just randomly lose levels of spellcasting for really no benefit. Say, like, they're more interesting than the core ones. I think the core ones were actually stronger for the most part. Hmm. I will say something that is interesting design space here is, like, something that I would say can 
if we were kind of doing like a redesign, if I was saying there was a designer saying, how do I want to make prestige classes? Something really different than archetypes. What you would see here, and first we have to say that obviously this is the first time they introduced archetypes. They don't know if they're going to be as popular as they ended up being. So obviously that's why they had the prestige classes. That was the only real option for out-of-class development until people really accepted archetypes. I understand that. But with prestige classes, what seems interesting here is that there is this whole idea of if you're a bard and a cavalier, then you can take this path to have like an interesting progression. Archetypes don't really do that. They certainly focus on one class. We end up later on seeing that the real solution to that was brand new classes that ended up being hybrids. But still, at least you could sort of see them poke around that design space here. A lot of times archetypes already fill that niche. Something like the archaeologist bard is effectively a bard slash rogue. You wouldn't need a prestige class for that. You can just take the archetype for it. Great point. Great point. Still allows you to progress down your bard progression, which is cool. What I will say about the prestige classes that they're typically good with is that at least somewhere in the mechanics of the prestige class, there is something that only that prestige class can do. They have a very unique and niche ability that typically isn't worth it, but it's technically something that no one else can replicate. Well, chapter seven, magic items, 38 pages. They have a little quick word here in one of the paragraphs talking about how magic items in the enemy's hands can spice up encounters. It's something that I myself recommend, and I even consider that when I evaluate magic items, but I always forget to do. I gotta remember to do this. It can be really cool to change a whole, almost a whole encounter by having one certain magic item in one of the normal enemy's hands. Bestiaries, Come with equipment and stuff like that, like, oh, he has a plus one breastplate. It's usually very standard equipment, though. Consider giving your enemies some cool magic items. There's just a little tip. We get new armors, shield, and weapon enchantments. We get new metamagic rods, which I believe are just rods for the new metamagic feats introduced in this book. We need to talk about them. Real quick, Christian, were those good metamagics introduced in this book? Yes, there were some good ones. There was like dazing spell. There was elemental spell. There was ectoplasmic spell, so you can hurt Mm. ghosts. There was a couple good ones added. Get them spooks. (laughs) They also had a ton of staffs. Do I not use staffs enough? Are they just in love with staffs that no no one really cares about, like prestige classes? I hate staffs, personally. They're just like so cost ineffective. And I mean, they're really powerful, but like the way you recharge them is kind of cumbersome because it's assuming you have a bunch of down days where the wizard can just be like, I'm going to sacrifice all my spell slots to recharge my staff. I I don't get them. They just let you cast spells. There's glorified wands. I'll just buy a wand, one of each spell. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Well, they do add a bunch because they like them. Uh, Why don't we go over just a few magic items that we thought were interesting. Um, This might be a little bit short, guys, because we did a whole episode on useful magic items and gear. uh, And there's even some of those items in this book themselves that we went over. So we'll just do it real quick. The Ion Torch is an Ion Stone, those little stones that float around your head. It's only 75 gold, and it has a light spell on it all the time. Probably the best, most useful light source because it doesn't require a free hand. The Buccaneer's Breastplate is just funny. It gives you water walk. Yeah, yeah, who cares? If a creature puts on the armor while underwater, the wearer is born to the top at a surface rate of 60 feet per round. I want to do this jump out of the water like a dolphin. I'm ready for this. We have a flotation vest in the form of a very expensive breastplate, and I love it. We found it. We found the best use to beguiling gift. Underwater campaign. Get a Buccaneer's Breastplate. Offer them underwater the breastplate. (laughs) They get shunted out of the combat 60 feet around. Yeah, good luck coming down here by the time we're done <laughs> the clamor box it's a box a little small box you tell the box what kind of sound to make and when to make it so in 20 minutes sound like a domestic abuse incident you leave the box somewhere in 20 minutes it'll sound like a couple fighting you do it standing up how do you do it sitting down i sit on my <laughs> stomach well i'm on my back <laughs> i love that we're the, that we had the chance to have that 
interaction happen live on air of what do you mean there's other people it's great i love that just do that in a crowd it's the most entertaining just sit back and watch everyone go well how in the world do you do it standing up i can't imagine doing it sitting down this is sort of freak your arms are nine times the length your cheeks are squished when you stand when you sit there and spread it like i can smell you from here what does it even mean i love it okay we can smell it from here the dungeon ring set, I've used this a couple times. It is a prisoner ring and a dungeon ring, or dungeon master ring, or something like that. You get a bunch of prisoner rings, you put it on prisoners, and the dungeon master can wear it, and he pretty much gets like a status effect, knows what's going on with them, stuff like that. They can't remove the ring. It's a good way to sort of a, of a slave sort of a scenario, and I've used it on players to put them in a very bad spot where it's like, how do you tell people who can maybe supposedly teleport or even before then can just run away? You want to keep tabs on them. You don't want them to just be a prisoner, but they are your slaves and they have to work for you while you give them this ring. And now, even if it really didn't keep them there, mentally, they now know I can't take this off. They know where I am at all times. All of a sudden, they find me in the police station. They know I went somewhere I wasn't supposed to go. Very good to use to sort of mess with the minds of your players. I can't remember if it was in a campaign with you or a campaign with my players, but we had someone use the Dungeon Ring set, but not in like a prisoner, prison warden kind of thing. It was like an NPC. It was like, look, you just got to trust me. This We can use this. I know it's weird. Like, you won't be able to take the ring off, but we, we can use this to know where each other are or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think someone made a deal that like each of them was going to wear a set of these rings. Interesting. The Elixir of Luck is just a potion that when you drink, you get three hero points for one hour. Ooh, if you're using the hero point system, that's really good. It's 3,600 gold, a little pricey, but honestly, late in the game, that's not a lot. That seems like a crazy late game item, but you can only benefit from one a month. Once you drink one, you can't drink another for a month. So it's not like you can spam it. All tools vest, which once a day you can use it to make tools appear. You can use it for general like hammers and stuff like that. But most people will use it to do craft checks without having the tools on them. You can get the tools necessary to do these checks. Very useful. I've seen it around a lot of people. Only 1,800 gold. The key of lock jamming. You stick this key in a lock and speak a command word and it jams the lock and increases the lock's resistance if someone tries to break it open. A really interesting non-spellcaster way to stop people from entering an area. Sash of the War Champion, count your armor training and bravery as four levels higher. There are surprisingly few of these items that let you treat yourself as higher level for certain class skills and almost every one of them is a must buy. As a fighter, get this. Very, very useful. It's really good early in the game because it can let you wear heavy armor at full speed by like level four. The soul soap. Soul soap is this ashy soap that when someone is washed with it, they get a new will save against a mind affecting effect. Another great thing, if you don't have any spellcasters in the party, just buy yourself a soul soap. And if the fighter gets mind controlled, we're well, going to have to pin him down and <laughs> rub this dirty soap all over him to clean his mind. It's only 200 gold, so I think it's really worth it to always have one of these on hand. What did you just say? Come here, come here. Hit to wash your mouth out with soap. <laughs> no, no, I had a spell cast on me. I have to swear. Come here, come here. We got the mule back cords. They let you count your strength as eight higher for carrying things. Okay, so now if you have 18 strength and you, here you, we go. you put these on, you got 26 strength effectively for carrying, and then you can't cast ant haul on yourself. You can now carry 2,760 pounds, a.k.a. Over a literal ton, you could just carry it. I don't know how you lift it. Don't ask me that question. That's a logistical thing. I don't know how you're lifting the ton, but you're carrying it. Christian, have you seen this abused a lot? Why are you so upset at this? I, did, I just find the visual of 
a person literally carrying a ton of things hilarious. Uh-huh. It's more of the potential. It's like, I know it's there. No one does this. Really, no one does this, but I think it's hilarious. the wizard's tower away. <laughs> like, someone could just do that. It, like, it's a world-building thing. Like, if someone really just wanted to pick up their house and move it, okay, well, just 200 gold worth of items, and there I am. <laughs> The girdle of opposite gender, that can be a fun one to throw in. I can imagine you could use it to do a little bit of social commentary, but I've only ever used it sort of as a fun thing because it's a cursed item. Once you put it on, you're opposite gender until you figure out how to break that curse and take it off. The filter of love is basically a love potion. Someone drinks it and they fall in love with the first person that they see. Uh, There's no saving throw. It has to be removed by a spell such as break enchantment, wish, yada, yada, yada. Fun fact, that's how I got Christian to do this podcast with me. It tasted really good. He told me it was bubble tea. <laughs> what, I find this one interesting because though it doesn't have a saving throw, it simply says that the person falls madly in love. So they are considered a helpful attitude. If a romantic attraction is possible, they fall in love. Otherwise, it is a platonic adoration. So it's not really like you have mind control over them. They just look at you very favorably. And I think using this and seeing its implication could be a really cool thing to see in a campaign. Like, do it on the enemy. The enemy's still the enemy. The enemy still has their wants and needs, just they also now are in love with one of the party members. I think that if you have some good role players in your game, this could be really fun. If you have some bad ones, there's like, uh, there's like that spell that makes you go run up and kiss somebody. I forget what the spell is. <laughs> like, uncontrollable lust or something? Something like that. Unnatural you lust. Can, you, I imagine bad role players role play it that badly, but if you're really like, role playing that you're in love with somebody i think this would be really interesting i could i could already like i'm making plans for this whole thing to run out where they end up like the other person ends up finding out that they are in love with them and then they're living this wonderful life and then the enchantment's finally broken they have to come to terms with wait did you take advantage of me are really really in love i mean it was real though wasn't it sure it was an enchantment but don't you still feel those ways we built the life together this is awesome there's a lot of potential here if you're good at role playing i want to see it on like the bbeg and he's like he still wants to destroy the world but he's like but i want you to come with me leave your friends behind i'll do anything <laughs> to spare you i'll take you away from this place <laughs> we get some wondrous items i've talked about the knuckle bone of fickle fortune before in our useful magic items and gear episode and i'm sure before as well i love the item so much it's essentially a d20 that has some ludicrous effects really fun if you want to throw a, a wrench into a campaign a lot of fun uh there's also the cloud castle of the storm king it's got like half a page to a page worth of things about it it's a flying castle it it's just a great illustration of how items can help inspire campaigns do yourself a favor just look up the item and read about it and see if you can't already come up with a cool campaign based around the item i love item spells we talked about spell earlier today things like that that inspire campaigns those are great let's look into chapter eight where we get new rules 16 pages we get some new combat maneuvers dirty trick drag reposition steal hero points are introduced in this book we talked about them a couple times we, we talked about the new feats and spells that interact with them i am my i don't know about you but in my my campaigns i don't think i've ever used hero points i've used them before but i usually end up modifying them pretty heavily just because i think their base uses are very boring it's just kind of mm-hmm. like a oh get a huge bonus to your next dice roll it doesn't say anything about the characters it doesn't help you st- tell a story it's just like i just want this big boost right now it's a little bit of like a gamey part of the system yeah i i instead change it into something basically hero powers i called them hero powers everyone had like a custom ability i made a custom ability uh, for damage everyone. draw a card yeah I yeah <laughs> gave him gave him soldiering <laughs> life tap whatever it is <laughs> 
We also get traits introduced in this book, which I remember somebody asking me. I was like, oh, it's definitely at the core. And I looked up, I'm like, oh, I guess that was not in the core. Just another illustration of something that is so good that I don't, I've never met, played with a group that hasn't used traits. Mm-hmm. Traits are, are really cool for role playing, as I've said before. And as I've said before, mostly ever see them used just for their power gaming reasons. Not power gaming, but just character optimization as opposed to role playing. I got to be better about using them from role playing. Well, Christian, we've come to the end of the episode. Let me give you my final thoughts. One of the most famous books in the Pathfinder role playing game. My conclusion on this is I think it is a really good book and it deserves the fame it has. I can see why it's held in such high regard. The player options they present here are pivotal. Uh, the feats, all of them are useful or even very useful. Unlike in some later books, they're like, oh, this is very niche. These are all great classes. The new classes are very strong. The archetypes are often referenced as one of the best parts of Pathfinder are in this book, introduced in this book. There's expanded options for many of the classes, i.e. like rogue talents and barbarian powers. The equipment and magic items might be what I would call the least strong part about this book, but I still think is a good part about this book. A lot of the magic items were particularly strong. The spells, I can't speak quite to their ubiquity or power level, but I can say they definitely didn't skimp on the amount. There's a lot of them. And almost universally, each caster gets a good amount at each level. And uh, there's more pit spells, so I'm in. I'm in it. And traits are assumed in almost all the games I play, so I assume most others. The new common maneuvers are good. Hero points are something that a ton of games use to this day. This book was so popular that almost completely everything in here is used, and and these alternate options aren't really alternate anymore. They're, like, necessary. So it's a great book. It's it's as important to me, in my opinion, uh, for a player as the core rule book is. I share basically the exact same opinion as you, Caleb, but the thing that I want to analyze is it being a book, would I actually own this book as a physical book on my bookshelf that I pick up and look through? And the answer is probably not just because it's very categorical. This is very much a giant 300 plus page list of options that I think having the book isn't too useful. I'm probably going to end up looking this all up online anyway, because there's just so much content in here. There's, you know, 200, what was it, 267 spells? What am I going to do, flip through the book? No, I'm going to use some kind of online tool. I think it's an amazing book. Like, again, exactly as Caleb said, I would never play without it. There were so many things in here that I just thought were core. I thought these were just part of the system that I would basically never play without. If someone's like, we're going to do a core rule book only, I'd be like, oh, no, no way. <laughs> no way, Jose. Nah, get out of here. But as, as an actual book, like you have the physical book, Caleb, how, what are your feelings on actually having the book flipping through it? Or do you just go to like Archive of Nethys or the SRD and look this stuff up? We are in a we're in an age where a lot of this is, is digital. I even, as many times I've said, our listeners will know I use a program that correlates all this stuff and helps me build it. I don't use physical books very often at all. I think as a book, it's very valuable. It's got a lot of great art. It's organized very, very well, which you can't say for all books, all especially all role-playing books. But we're, we're kind of moving past the age of the physical book as being a necessary requirement, especially at, I think, the middle to the end of a system's life. So it's, it's a reason we don't, at the end, rate books anymore, tell you their prices. You will notice in, in some of our other book reviews, we did do that. It's because they're the earlier ones. It's, it's hard to justify that now that everything is free or digital. I still, I still buy new books every time they come out because I do like flipping through them and it's easier 
for me to I digest initially by looking at a book. And then later on, I kind of go through all the digital. I'm like, oh, what was that one spelling? And look it up or whatever. But when I first digest something, I do do it through a book. So if this is your first time getting into the system, I probably would have greatly benefited from reading through this first before jumping in. But at the time of reading this book, I knew most of its content already from playing the game over years. It would have been much easier digestible by reading the book through first. That's my personal opinion. I know a lot of people might still suggest, eh, the books aren't even worth it anymore. But I do think they're great for first first time introduction and new rules. When I compare it to books like, say, Planar Adventures or maybe the Inner Sea Gods book, um, those other books are books that have a lot of text mm. describing locations, a lot of art, whereas sure. this, I feel, is more categorical. It's very much lists of things, lists of classes, lists of spells. So I think owning the book in that case for the other ones, Inner Sea Gods and Planar Adventures, I, I would own a physical copy of that book and probably make better use of it because looking up mm -hmm. a description of the Plane of Elysium isn't as useful online as I think it is in the book and with that organization, sure. whereas this is... You know, I have everything right here in Archive of Nethys very neatly typed out. Here's all the archetypes. Here's all the rage powers. Here's yeah. a, that that to me is, is, I think, very useful. But I think this is overall wonderful book. Wouldn't play without it. 10 out of 10. 1 million out of 10. Great. Perfect. I would call those books you just mentioned and, and things like the Book of the Damned, I would call them like reference books. Mm -hmm. I have the Planner's Adventure Guide. So when somebody says, we go to the Boneyard, I can look it up and learn everything I need to know about it to help role play in there and run my, my players through it. This is not a reference book. This is a pure, uh, people might call it a crunch book. Anything that is predominantly player options. And I think you're helping me here. I thank you a lot for helping me refine my answer. Things that give you a lot of player options yes. are less useful to look up in the long term. When you have things such as the this system allows you to have the internet and things like Hero Lab and other builders that have all the information there. The information's in other places where it's easier to look up. But like the Game Mastery Guide, I, I'll need that book because it's predominantly text, not rules. It's predominantly advice. Right. So I need to read through that advice. Reference books, like the Planar Adventures, is predominantly a reference thing that I want to look up that does combine some player crunch, but with mostly text, lore, that sort of advice, that sort of thing. But books that are predominantly player options, I think, are, are less strong uh, to buy the physical copy and reference so often. There, I answered very long for a question that you probably didn't want a long answer to. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Class is dismissed. Pathfinder Academy is part of the Trailblazer Network. For other great RPG podcasts, visit our website, tblazer.net. Want to get in touch? Email us at tblazernetwork at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at tblazernetwork. This episode was edited by Devin Tonnell. This is Johan Martins. Thanks for listening. Oh, hey, didn't see you there. Christian and I were just hanging out on this totally eventless day and in no way forgetting anything important. Hey, Caleb, do you think these guys would be interested in joining us? You know, I bet they would. I mean, if they listen to Pathfinder Academy, they gotta be cool, right? If role-playing games are your thing, why don't you guys check out our other podcast, Trailblazers? Trailblazers is an actual play podcast where you can see many of the concepts addressed in this show come to life. Season 2 of Trailblazers has been great so far, and I especially like that you can get into it without any prior knowledge of Season 1. It's definitely a fun adventure, especially if you like mysteries and a dash of cyberpunk with your fantasy. If high fantasy is more your style, then consider giving Season 1 a listen. You can find Trailblazers on iTunes. We've got a bunch of other ways to listen as well, so go to our site tblazer.net for a complete list of the ways that you can listen. So go ahead, grab some dice and join us. Christian, I told you to turn off your phone while we're recording. Sorry, I just got a text from my dad.
He asked me what I got for Mother's Day? Oh, when is that? Oh, no.